Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video for those that are watching our video today. Uh, the topic that we have is near and dear to the investors and entrepreneurs that are listening in here and very specifically to women entrepreneurs and women investors because one of the things that um, and the many, many years that I have been involved in entrepreneur connecting, creating ecosystems for entrepreneurs and investors, you know, for probably more years than I care to really admit, I was often the only woman in the room. And uh, it has become something that it's changing. And part of the reason why it's changing is because of people like the guest I have today, Angela Lee. And so let me introduce her. And we're going to talk about um, not only the, the why she formed the group that she formed, how she became an angel investor, but also the, this, the, what we're seeing in the trends and what she's seeing in the trends in bringing more women to the table to be investors. And therefore, that also makes it more comfortable for women that are seeking money because it can be an intimidating uh, um, uh, process for women founders that are seeking um, capital from uh, angel investors and venture capitalists. And so, you know, that piece of it and, and why that's important and, and the role that education plays in that. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about Angela. So she, so here's the thing. She's the founder of 37 Angels, right? It's uh, for the record, and we'll talk more about it, but she's a, it's a startup investment network that activates new investors through an educational boot camp. Currently, she's the professor of practice, VC leadership and strategy at Columbia Business School, and previously the chief innovation officer there at the, at the university as well. Within that expertise, since 2010, she has been a called-upon speaker and trainer on the topics of innovation, inclusion, and investing at really, you know, novel places, like amazing places like NASA, Amazon, BMW, the New York Stock Exchange, and even the White House. That's just a, a top of the list of all the places that she has been called upon. Uh, and so her, she came from this. Her corporate gig was an engagement manager at McKinsey. So first of all, welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast, Angela. So excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. And tell our audience, so how does somebody go from becoming an engagement manager at McKinsey to become a thought leader in innovation and an expert enough, not only within angel investing, but to move beyond that and to actually start and lead a successful angel yeah. investor group. So I'll talk about how I became an angel investor and then how I started 37 Angels because they didn't happen at the same time. And the honest answer is I became an angel investor accidentally. Uh, it was 2008. I was you know, working in management consulting and one of my best girlfriends had made a movie and it was a movie about increasing the awareness of mental health specifically in the Asian community, because the Asian community doesn't really talk about mental health. Um, we're just like, oh, you're sad, get over it. Um, and I really wanted more people to see this movie, and I invested in the marketing and distribution rights. I wrote a $5,000 check in 2008, and all of a sudden, I was a quote-unquote angel investor, and I didn't even know that <laughs> term at the time. And then all of a sudden, I started getting on these email lists and getting invited to these events. I had no idea what I was doing. So yeah. for you know, three to four years really bumbled my way around the space and, you know, really wanted to learn. 
and um, also wanted to invest alongside people who looked a little bit more like me. You know, I was 28 when I started angel investing and, wow. you know, I literally got asked, are, are you lost? Are you in the right room? You know, or like, <laughs> where's your money from? Or, you know, what does your husband do? Just all these questions. And <laughs> from that, 37 Angels was born in early 2013. And uh, it really has a couple of missions. The first is it's very much grounded in education. Obviously, my day job is a professor. And so I clearly really believe in education. But we have an investment boot camp that teaches people how to be angel investors. And that it was a group of specifically women investors. Now we invest in women and men-led startups, but the investors, the people writing the checks are all women. Oh, okay. And it was something that was really important to me. Um, it also, we were a younger group than the average angel investor. And so all of that was how 37 Angels was born, really out of a personal need. Okay, so um, that's really terrific. So let's, let's dig into a little bit. Um, let's first start about the importance of, of education and angel investing, because as we talked before this, this particular show, you know, that was the main reason why I wrote the book that I wrote, Inside yeah. Secrets to Angel Investing. And when I was starting or I'm uh, rebooting, I should say, the angel investor group that I ran for many years, the Network of Business Angels and Investors, I knew that the reason why you know, you could get an angel investor to the table. And in fact, the story you told was very much what I learned from so many of the angel investors when I would first meet them in the group when I started just helping people, you know, helping out in the group. How'd you become an angel investor? Well, so a friend invited me and I lost some money and then I figured it out and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I realized that if I was to have a successful angel group, I needed to, one, help people not lose their money, you know, by giving them some best practices and things like that. And two, you know, it's really scary when you get ready to write that first oh, big check, right? If you're writing absolutely. more than five, particularly if you're writing more than $5,000, you know what I mean? It's like, that. this is money. Oh, what, all the other things I could do with this, but oh, I want to help this entrepreneur. Oh, I want to make, I'd like to make some money, but you know, that's, and so the best way to, I found, and, and my precursor, which was just a bunch of PDF files to the book, was the best way to get people comfortable with it was through angel investing. So when angel, so education being so much important, and obviously what you teach at, at Columbia is different than what you teach within the angel investor community. And I had the opportunity to participate in one of your webinars, and you were just spot on with the 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 down to earth real language of what things are because it's so easy when you're enmeshed in it to take it for granted that people understand the terms understand the yeah. agreements understand some of the legalese that gets put into some of these agreements so talk about uh, first about the journey of you realizing well we got to do some kind of education and then um, how you came about, because it's not an easy task to put a boot camp together. So yeah. was there some just sort of ad hoc, you did this, and how did they get formalized? Yeah, so some of the things that I did um, early on, I just realized, you know, you walk into these rooms, and I was just furiously writing down every fifth word people were saying, and I would be Googling <laughs> and looking up on Investopedia. And, you know, I felt like, you know, venture capital, that the world is a space where I think that when people speak and they're not understood. I think it makes them feel smarter in some ways. And I often talk that 37 Angels shines, shines a light on the black box of, angel, of you know, startup investing because 
Um, there's so much jargon. Um, and it's a world where in some ways, like, it's good to be a cool kid, right? It's, it's good <laughs> to be on the side of the velvet rope. And it's not yes. in their best interest in some ways to explain things. And so I think people like feeling cool. They like being part of Shark yeah. Tank, whatever the case may be. Um, and so we really took the complete opposite ethos, right? We have a glossary on our website. Um, we just, any, I'm, I, you know, obviously I, I'm, I'm a teacher and we try to create a really, really safe space. There are truly no dumb questions because I promise you, if you have that question, somebody else does as well. And so that's just kind of the ethos of how it was born. Um, and then in terms of just creating the curriculum itself, I just, I read everything that I could. I, I participated in some programs. I went to a lot of speaker series. And what I found with these speaker series is you had an incredibly accomplished person, right? Obviously very successful, but they didn't really break it down for you. So they throw out three terms and you'd be like, well, I kind of understood that at a surface level, but I don't know how to do cap table math. For example, if I put $50,000 into a company and then they raise two rounds of financing and then Google acquires them for $100 million, mathematically, what does that mean to me? And I found that um, it was just assumed that you understood or it didn't matter. And I just wanted to give people the comfort of breaking things down in very real terms. And the bootcamp is very much grounded in experiential learning, right? So you learn the curriculum, you apply it to a case study, and then you apply it to a real life company that's raising capital. And so it's why we have the bootcamp in partnership with the network. And so things aren't done, um, you know, in isolation in a theoretical sense but you're truly applying what you learned yesterday to a startup that you're diligencing today. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. So, um, so tell us that, well, let, let me first say for, for those who are listening, um, you go to the website and it's really simple. It's the number 37 angels.com very straight up. Uh, there's a tab there for the boot camp, So you can get information about the boot camp and, and how you can engage in that. And they can sign up to do, to attend some of your webinars, I assume there as well. And I tell you, it was really a worthwhile event. I was like this, nodding my head the whole time. like going, Oh, perfect point. Oh, I'm so glad she covered that. Oh yeah, that was good. So, um, so how like 37, more than 37 members, where did the 37 come from? Well, how did that happen? Yeah, I, I, I get asked this question a lot. So we have about 85 members. And um, when we started, uh, only 13% of angel investors were women. And we wanted to close the gap from 13 to 50. Um, I always say, like, it's never good if people have to do math to figure out the name <laughs> of your company. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of stuck. Um, and what's nice is whenever we're on a kind of an investor list, we're always listed first from, from an alphabetical standpoint, but that's why we wanted to close the gender gap and start investing from 13% to 50%. Uh, the good ish news, um, we're, we're, you know, in fast forward seven or eight years, it's about like 18%, um, somewhere yeah. in there. So we're, we've made some progress, but it's, it's been slower than I'd like. That's great. So like so you said that not all your all of your members are women investors right so we have um 82 women and a few good men and they tend to be husbands and brothers because we have, we have a few men in the network but it is predominantly okay. a female network. okay yeah. so um where are you located are they all right around your your where you're located because that's a really good number for you know a, a community of women that are going to be you know active yeah. as investors 
So um, I'm based in New York City, so I want to say, you know, oh, okay. most of the network is there, but we have about 20 members that are distributed um, across the country and across the world. So we have a big cohort, not surprisingly, in Boston and San Francisco. Um, and then we have folks in Texas, um, Saudi Arabia, and Hong Kong, um, and London. So really international. And the good news is that um, we were, you know, streaming our events. We have a, all of our educational stuff is done online anyway. This is pre-COVID. Um, our social events, you know, obviously we, we do an event once a year where we all get our hair and makeup done and we get our headshots done. That's a little bit harder <laughs> to participate in if you're in Saudi Arabia, but it is meant to be, you know, open to everybody. Oh, that's cool. That's a nice little perk. Yeah. So uh, talk about your methodology of how you identify companies and sure. evaluate them and, you know, and, and because um, I remember you, we, when we talked before, there was a little bit within like the future of work. And so is it, you know, a lot of times they think of women groups, they're going to do the touchy feely things like the yeah. candy company or the, you know, these kind of, you know, you know, that's sort of whatever. Yes. And I have been pitched every mom product <laughs> under the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So talk about uh, so methodology. Of course I'll separate like process and then kind of investment methodology. So process I'll start because it's simple. We look at about 2,500 companies a year. We invent, we introduce the best 50 to our angels and then our angels vote on their favorites and then independently decide on what they want to vote on. So we think you get the benefit of deal flow. It's hard to go through 2,500 companies on your own and you get the benefit of the wisdom of the network, but at the end of the day, you decide where you want to put your money. So that's the process. In terms of our methodology, we'll, we look at four things. We look at uh, the four Ps, which are people, problem, progress, and price. People, problem, progress, and price. So from a people perspective, we want to make sure that the people starting the company are have domain expertise, have complementary skill sets, and have that like magical it factor that when you look them in the eye, you're like, you're going to beat the nine other companes who've pitched me the exact same idea in the last three months. <laughs> That's people. Um, problem, we want a large problem. We want an attractive competitive landscape. And most importantly, we want a founder who understands the problem they're solving. I find that entrepreneurs often lead with product versus lead with problem. And an example of that is green juices, right? I'm sure we've all walked into that wall in Whole Foods and seen green juices and founders tend to be like, well, it's made with kale, or is it made with, you know, quinoa, or is it maple water? How many calories does it have? And the question I always want to know is, what problem are you solving, right? Are you solving weight loss? Are you solving convenience? Are you solving um, detox? Like, whatever the case may be. And if you are, it's like the, the customer, how you speak to them, the indirect competitors, it's all very, very different. So a really crystal clear understanding of problems. From a progress perspective, we want repeatable progress. At the end of the day, startups are customer acquisition engines, and we want to know that you have a machine that when we feed it dollars, it, it knows how to go out and acquire customers through direct email or through Instagram ads or through Facebook ads, and you really have built a mechanism to acquire customers. So that's the progress side. And then price. We, of course, want it to be an attractive valuation. That's a whole separate you know, podcast in and of itself. So yeah. people problem, progress, and price. Um, you asked about sector. Um, we are fairly sector agnostic, but the spaces we invest most in are digital health, future of work, advertising technology, and logistics tech. So we have done well in a post-COVID world, given that those sectors have done fairly well. Yeah, absolutely. So I love the four Ps. That is it's so it's so foundational 
to what really every angel group is um is really the successful ones all i have found do that they don't say it's quite as so eloquently as what you did with the four p's but that's good that's because you're an educator right and people it's easier for them to remember four p's and what those mean but the the problem piece and the progress piece i think are so many times that um it get that gets lost in the noise or the sizzle and the and the things so let's dig a little bit into that and say why I want you to address it in two ways. Why is it that it seems to be something that entrepreneurs, we always have to re-educate them as to that as being the main issue when they're, they're doing a pitch or trying to discuss their, discuss their value proposition. And then we'll roll in and have a deeper conversation as how women and men present that differently. But, yeah. but first, you know, because it's just, it seems like it's always a conversation that we're having about that with entrepreneurs. So why, why do you think that is? I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, founders are, you know, knee deep and they're so deeply thinking about their product and they tend to think about it from like a feature set value proposition. And we're so often told to talk about that value prop. And so you have, I'm sure, you know, Karen, you've experienced this. The founder comes to you and they're like, tell me about your product. And you're like, it has these 17 features. And so the way that I try to cut through that noise is I always ask founders, okay, you know, who's your customer? And they're like, okay, it's, you know, teachers. Teachers are your, are your customer. So I'm a teacher. I teach the fifth grade and I'm talking to another fifth grade teacher. What do I say to him or her about your product? Right? Because that's what really gets you to the, like, when, when I'm telling you about an amazing app you need to download, I don't say, Karen, let me tell you about these 17 features and why you should download it. I'm just like, you need to download this app, this app because it's going to save you time in doing X. And so we look for founders who understand that in a really, really crystal clear way, because if they don't, it means they are never going to know how to sell it. They don't have customer empathy and they don't know who their competitor set is. Um, and so it's just such an important part of it um, that I find that founders need to be taught that art um, because I think they just get too deep into their slide deck and they forget how to communicate and how we all talk to each other as customers and as users. Yeah, they'll sometimes, um, I've seen them, they'll take a customer pitch deck and try to make it into an investor deck. Yeah. And so it is all about the product and not the problem, you know, oftentimes that's yeah. it. And, then and, and we look for deep, deep customer empathy. You know, we invest in a lot of future of work of which education technology is a subset of that. And if you think about ed tech and having customer empathy, what does the teacher care about versus the parent care about versus the student care about versus the principal care about? Like what problem are you solving for each of them? And again, that doesn't come through with here are my 17 features and benefits. That comes through only by truly understanding the problem you're solving for all of those different customers. Yeah, and absolutely. And the on the progress side, the customer acquisition, so is it, because sometimes they'll, I, when I, I'm, I'm coaching companies and in the past when we were, you know, screening companies, it would be, so, you know, they would know who, they might have a really good avatar of who their customer is and that mm -hmm. need. But their way of reaching them was gobbled in a lot of legal, you know, wordsmith words, but no real um, idea of how. And that's why you always say, well, traction. If they can put money in the yep. bank, then you know that they know how to actually reach a customer and sell it. So is it always just proof in the pudding because they've done it? Or do you, or is there a way that some companies you might get them pre-revenue because they truly understand the sales process? Yeah. 
Yeah. So people always ask me like, how much revenue do I need to have before I can pitch an investor? And I'm like, I don't actually care about the absolute numbers. I care that you've built this customer acquisition engine. And so, you know, we've had founders who've been on Oprah, we've had founders who've been on Shark Tank, and they'll have a million dollars in revenue because as you can imagine, the power of Oprah is, 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 a, is a big force, but that is not repeatable progress. That's not a machine. You're not going to be on Oprah every month. Right. And so I'd much rather you're like, I have 3000 customers, but I know exactly how I got them. We got 1500 of them through Facebook ads and we got 1500 of them through direct email. I know it costs me $20 to acquire them through Facebook. And I know these seven words are the ones that are giving me the highest click through rate on that Facebook ad. And I know Excellent. everything about it. And then um, I know my customer lifetime value, right? I know that on average that customer spends $60 with me. And for us, we're looking for that magical ratio between customer lifetime value, right? How much money they spend with you over the duration of their life with you, and then um, how much it costs to acquire them. And we're looking for a three to one ratio, right? We want the lifetime value to be three times that of the customer acquisition cost. And so when you break it down in that way, it's much less about the sizzle and the pop. It's much more like you have a disciplined way to go after customers. You mentioned Traction. There's a great book called Traction by Gabriel Weinberg. He walks through the 19 different customer acquisition channels to say, hey, don't know how to do influencer marketing? Read page 74. That's a yeah. Traction by Gabriel Weinberg. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about this, this concept. I'm going to shift... Go uh, tracks here a little bit. Future of work. Now that's a, those are pretty words. Yeah. What does that really mean when it comes to the marketplace and from an investor perspective, a company, I mean, that's a, I think that's a fairly new industry type of, of word, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I so people define future of work in lots of different ways. The way that I define it and that I would say is the most common way to define it is kind of two buckets of, um, startups. So one are startups that are serving kind of the non-traditional worker. Um, and again, this existed pre-COVID, but 40% uh, of the U.S. labor market is non-W2. I mean, they're not full-time. They are doing four jobs or they're part-time or they're digital nomads. And so how do you help them save for retirement? How do you help them use VPN, right, to connect to the, to the office um, um, uh, system? How do you um, help them to... Um, feel included within a workforce, right? So how do you, how do you have employee retention and good culture in that situation? So this whole body of startups that are serving kind of the non-traditional worker, the worker of the future, right? That's a, there's a huge world within there. And then the second category is more worker automation, right? So robot overlords taking over our jobs, right? That's okay. the I very much only invest in the first category, but there are a lot of people who invest in robotics. I would argue that machine learning is in this, um, but those are kind of the two overarching categories, serving the non-traditional worker and then um, worker automation, and then there are kind of subcategories within there. Um, but people specialize in lots of different ways. I have a particular bias towards, for example, adult learning and the fact that we're all gonna change jobs 10 to 15 times in our career. So how do we learn to upskill ourselves? Um, it's a space that I'm particularly fond of, um, but that, that's, that's future work. Interesting. So now, you know, given this pandemic and it is completely yeah. turned often the process of work, the, the availability, the types of jobs, the way you do your jobs upside down, right? Yep. So were you, were, nobody can, could predict this, but in the way that you were anticipating robotics was going to have, it's, it, we're on our way there. 
uh, efficiency of how you have offices, office things. The, the piece you just mentioned about education, you know, that, that everybody knows that they've been, we've been challenged in um, yeah. providing alternative ways of getting education to, to be able to do your job differently or do a different job. So we're, was your, was 37 Angels kind of, they could, they had this term skating to the puck prior to this pandemic. So you're good. You, you you were, you were, or did you, things get disruptive for you as well? Yeah. So um, as an investor, the good news is we've been future invest, future of work investors since day one. So the good news is we were way ahead of that curve. Um, and so a lot of our startups are actually doing quite well because right now all of us are non-traditional workers. And so that's been very well from an investor perspective. Um, I think as a team, um, the nice thing is we were fairly geographically distributed already. Our boot camp we already offered online. We already had a ton of virtual events. And so I think we were very lucky in that it didn't really disrupt either our, it's actually been beneficial for our investing and it didn't really disrupt at all our workflow. And so I think we've been very fortunate in that way. Oh, good. Okay, great. So when it comes to your boot camp and training investors, now you, you offer it all men and women participate in your boot camp to learn how to be angel investors, right? The in-person boot camp is only for women. The online boot camp is for men and women. Okay. So do women and men think differently when it comes to um, learning about the financial side of yeah. investing, uh, evaluating investing, separating emotion from the subjective side, you know, the, the, the checklist of what they need versus, oh, I just love this person or this thing. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the difference of how women that are coming into the investing world step into it differently and, and transform you know, and, and in any personal experience you had specific to teaching women versus men? Yeah. I mean, I'll start with some of the data and I'll, I'll share some more kind of anecdotal observations. So from a data perspective, um, there's a, a fairly famous study that a lot of people know about that says that um, when men look at a job description, they will apply if they qualify, they have like six out of the 10 characteristics the job description is listing, whereas women tend to apply when they have like nine out of 10. So women have a much higher bar for themselves before they're like, I'm qualified for that role. And what's interesting about startup investing is that none of us are qualified to do this, right? We are investing in really early companies in nascent industries with tons of unknowns. All of us are underqualified. So men are much willing, I think, to lean into that discomfort and lean into that imposter syndrome of I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And the way that that manifests in class is, I, 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 I teach a fairly similar class at Columbia Business School, and a lot of the classes, the questions for men are like, you know, I know this, but I really want to get a sense of what you think, right? Whereas I think women are a little bit more willing to admit when they don't understand something. Um, and so that's just kind of a manifestation of how they ask questions. Um, that's certainly one. Um, and I think the other thing that the data shows is that um, there's been a lot of data to show that women make better wealth managers, we're better asset managers, we're better fund managers. Oh, really? And the reason why is because we trade our, we make we trade less often. And in general, people who you know, manage a mutual fund and trade stocks less often, they do better because humans are really bad at timing the market. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. Um, it's that I do find that, um, uh, that women are slower to write that first check. 
again, this is a little bit more anecdotal, but I have noticed that it takes women a little bit more to write that very first check that might be related to risk aversion, that might be related to feeling like they're not qualified to write that first check. But I find that after the first check, then the pacing is incredibly similar, but it's why we have the boot camp. It's why Karen, you wrote your book. It's to get people over that hump, right. that first check. Cause I feel like once you do that, then it's, it's much, much better. Yep. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is, you know, I think the way that we interact with our founders post-investment, um, you know, again, this is anecdotal, but we, it's an incredibly collaborative, transparent and helpful group of women that we've, we've put together. And I think, you know, the statistic that, so we've invested in 75 companies, financially we've done very well, but the statistic that I'm the most proud of is that um, we have a bunch of testimonials on our website from founders, and 75% of those testimonials came from founders who we did not give money to. So we're just like, we're not going to invest in you. Oh, wow. Our is a positive testimonial, and I think there is something about not being a jerk when you're in that room, like, hey, it's a shark tank. Um, but I think we are collaborative and helpful and transparent and empathetic from day one. And that means that we're going to be hopefully easier for founders to work with, but it's good for us too. We get better deal flow as a result of it. We hear wow. all the time, you're the only angel network we're pitching. Really? Wow. That's good. Okay. So, um, so within the context of, of people getting started in it, right? You mentioned a little bit, you know, because there's, there's the startup and it's like a, the pure seed stage thing. And it might be a new technology, a new this or that. And then, you know, and within the context of a woman, a financial manager, that's a woman and the, um, the uh, not trading often kind of piece of that. How do you convey to your investors or people coming in the importance of having a long-term play, a strategy for the number of deals to do over a period yeah. of time and the diversification within your own strategy or portfolio, building a plan of how you're going to be an angel investor for the next five years, let's say, or something like that. Because yeah. I found I cover it in my book. I think it's really important for people to not even bother to get started if they're only going to do two investments, for example. So, so address how you, how you bring that, create that mindset within your yeah. community and in, within your, your training. Yeah. So I think one, again, you can probably tell at this point, I like data. So there's very clear data to show that when you invest in more startups, you are more likely to be successful. And the reason is because when you write 10 checks, you're probably going to lose all your money in a third to a half you'll hit a couple of singles and doubles, and that 10th company is where you're gonna make 10X, 20X, 50X. And you can't do that if you only write two checks. So like, there's just so much data. So I start there, here's the data. I think the second thing is from a process and mechanism perspective, um, you know, to be a member of most angel networks, you have to write one check per year. And so we really do hold people accountable. There's this term called startup theater, which is like, it's really cool to be in the room hearing those pitches, but like, are you actually gonna write a check? So we try to avoid that from day one. Um, and I think the last thing we do is we talk a lot about this being a real part of your portfolio, not just financially, but also from a time perspective. You know, we think about the activity of an investor as sourcing, selecting, and supporting. Again, I like alliteration. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of investors think that all being an investor is, is selecting great companies. And I'm like, no, no, no. You have to be out there talking to companies, sourcing great deal flow, and even more importantly, supporting them. Right. And helping make introductions to series B investors or to customers or to acquirers. 
So we talk a lot about like, it's really a part of your investing portfolio. It's also part of the time that you spend um, and that you should do it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I also think, you know, because there's so many ways that people can participate now because of the various types of general solicitation, direct public offerings, crowdfunding platforms, you know, you can get involved in companies that are, are further along and maybe less risk and it's okay to solo invest in something like that. You still need to have a plan. I want to recommend anybody listening to this to, to make sure that you get access to the training. I'd love for you to get my book, but also definitely plug in to what Angela is doing with her training because there's never a reason why learning more is not a good idea. Is that, it's kind of like a backward. Well, point. you are preaching to the converted. I've dedicated my life to learning. So absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, most definitely do that, but then make that plan that you're going to, I, I, you know, I address it. It says, you know, in your case, cause you're dealing with disaccredited investors. And so you have to have a little bit larger portfolio, but whatever the amount is, you figure out what your liquidity pieces, your risk tolerances, and then how much does that look like that you can commit to on an annual basis over yes. the next five years? Cause that's going to drive the stage and type of deal that you can get involved in. So um, I usually recommend that it's no more than five to 10% of your portfolio, right? Exactly. One to three checks per year. That's like a pretty good way to get to those 10 companies. Um, but that it can take you five years to get there. It's okay. You don't have to do that all in one year. Right. Right. And, and to your point about the 10, everybody always uses the 10 example. It's not the 10th company that's going to make your money. If anybody could do that, they'd be like, oh, I'll do $1,000, $1,000, exactly. $1,000, and then I'll do my big money. You know, if we have, and I have interviewed a lot of people that have methodologies and theories of how to improve that. And I tell people, it's like, okay, that formula was kind of come brought up by VCs. And if there's anybody that's got enough money to throw at a problem and figure this out, and they still have the same thing. It's just the nature of economics, market dynamics. There's just so many Luck. variables, yes, that we just, that are unpredictable on the success. We have the, like the methodology you, you went through with your four Ps, that we can approach it, you know, your pro people problem progress price, that says this is a logical way that you can check these boxes and not make, truly stupid investments, you know, that's a great way to sort of, to approach that. And so just really think through that and, and, and be um, cognizant of your participation in that. So as we wrap up here in the next couple of minutes, Angela, what have we not talked about that you want to make sure the audience knows golden nugget you want to put out there, anything you want to um, add? Yeah, I would just say for anybody who's thinking about doing this, um, Get out there. I think that um, it's it's you need to do two things. One, I think it's just really important to hear a bunch of pitches before you write that first check. And the good news is there is a demo day every hour of every day. You could, I promise you, you could find pitches to hear. Um, and then force yourself to keep like a little notebook, right? Which is you know what I've taken of me, what have I invested. Um, and it kind of forces you to like build that gut around what you like to invest in. That's one. And the right. second thing is just find your tribe of people that you want to do this with because you are smarter in terms of having a smart network of people around you. It's also just more fun, right? right. Uh, you know, when we have demo days in New York, it's like a thousand people in a room and it's just so much more fun to go into that room with, you know, three friends and then go to coffee afterwards and talk about the company. So I would say 
get out there and hear companies pitch and then find a tribe of people that you want to do this alongside because it's just more fun for everyone. Absolutely. So thank you so very much, uh, Angela, for being on the show. Remember, everybody, go to 37angels.com, 37angels.com to plug into the community and learn all about that. And I really do appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for doing what you're doing. You're very welcome. We're together. We're in this together. We're going to, I'm I'm so happy to know you now and we'll be, we'll be, uh, you know, we're forever connected. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and please go to karenrands.co to learn all about the, uh, how I help entrepreneurs and investors and get access to the book. And if you're listening on the podcast, there's a little closing message here for you. So thank you onwards and upwards, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources, and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings. It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.